All right, hello, and uh, welcome to another edition of the Dockyard Roundtable. I'm going to be your host this week. Uh, yeah, it's me, Rockwell Schrock. I'll pass it around to uh, introduce everyone else. Chris Woolis. Uh, I'm May Maybe. Uh, Matthew Stebbins. Mike Benz. Great. Welcome, everyone. Nathan Long. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, Nathan, I cut you off. <laughs> hey, I'm Nathan uh, Long. We're useless without a, an algorithm to sort for us. All right. So uh, today we have sort of one primary topic, uh, something that Nathan has encountered uh, recently, really mysterious issues encountering involving testing. And uh, yeah, just why don't you tell us a little bit more about that, Nathan, and uh, how this came about and what the issue was and how you how you resolved it. Yeah, so I came across some issues with um, database deadlocks in our test suite. Uh, and I, I had never run into this before. Um, so the situation was we uh, we have a test suite on the project that I'm on that's a couple thousand tests, I guess. And we weren't making a lot of use of async. So, so we had a few modules marked async, but the assumption, I think maybe going back to when this was a true assumption, was that you couldn't use async on uh, tests that use the database. So like your data case kind of tests, those were all all left off the async true tag. Um, and if, if you go back to earlier Phoenix, uh, like it's, we still had comments saying like, you can't do that <laughs> if it's if it accesses the database. Um, but that's not the case anymore. So, um, you know, our test suite is not terribly slow, but um, it, you know, it's never fast enough in my view. Like if it could be less than a second, that would be ideal. <laughs> but we were at like probably 80 seconds or something like that. And so, you know uh, that affects your workflow. It affects it affects CI. That's really probably where the pain comes in the most. Uh, you know, you, you make one more commit and then you got to wait. So um, so we wanted to speed it up. So the first thought was just go through and make everything async. Um, and what we encountered was a bunch of deadlocks in the database, and that was owing to a decision that was made to have a bunch of the factories produce the same data every time, basically. <laughs> so it would produce, you know, uh, a user like, uh, you know, user one at example.com every time. And if, if multiple tests did that, they would run into issues with each other. But I didn't really understand what a deadlock was. Um, and I looked it up and I still didn't really understand it. So I went down to doing like an experiment. So hopefully I can like explain this enough to to make sense like and i've always found that i learn the best from doing kind of a minimal experiment like when i was learning about like what's a git rebase i'm like oh i can just make my own new repo and then just like make some stupid commits and rebase them and see what happens um i love little experiments like that so for this one what i did was i opened two terminal sessions and two different psql windows and i was like i'm gonna try to make a deadlock happen um so uh, and, I, and I succeeded in it. So what, what I did was I made a users table just as like name and email. I made a products table that has uh, a name and a price. And so in the first terminal, in the first PSQL session, I, I did begin to start a transaction and then did insert into users, name, email, values, mo, mo at example.com. Okay, so insert user mo in the first uh, PSQL session. Go to the second session and start a transaction and insert uh, a stupid product, a pickle juicer for 99 cents into the products table. Um, so I, I was, I was, <laughs> I have like a- The Ronco, the Ronco pickle juicer. 
It's a classic. <laughs> How much would you pay for this pickle juicer? <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. So insert the pickle juicer in the second session. Now, both of those, like, we, we started a transaction, but in PSQL, you'll see it like it like that insert succeeded. It's like, boom, it worked. Okay, inserted one record, moving right along. But the transaction is still open. So now I went back to the first uh, the first session and tried to insert that same product that I just inserted in the second session. And what happens there is you don't see it insert. It's blocking because there's, oh, like I neglected to mention a very important thing, which is there's a unique index on the product name and a unique index on the email. So Postgres is like, wait a second. There's another transaction that's happening right now that is messing with that row. Uh, creating that row, it could be updating the same row, it could be deleting a row that you're inserting somewhere else or whatever, or updating somewhere else. So, so what happens there is the second attempt to assert that product in the, in the first transaction, it just blocks and you just sit sitting there. Because what's happening is it's, it's in a state of indecision. It's like, I don't know if I can insert this product because it's being inserted, but the transaction it's being inserted in hasn't, hasn't completed yet. So if that transaction rolls back, then yeah, I can insert this. But if that transaction completes, then I'm going to have a conflict, and I'm and I'm going to um, get a unique constraint violation. So it's just sitting there waiting to see what happens. And you can play out both of those scenarios. You can roll that transaction back and see it finish, or you can complete that transaction and see the see the second attempt to do that blow up. Um, but for the for the deadlock, you want to make it worse, <laughs> which is while the first session is like trying to insert the product that the se second session already did, you go to the second session and try to insert the user that the first session did. And now A is waiting on B and B is waiting on A. And that's what a deadlock is. Like A can't proceed with inserting the product and B can't proceed with inserting the user because they're, they're both waiting on the other one to do the opposite thing. Um, and at that point, you get the deadlock error in the second one. Uh, according to Postgres docs, it'll, it'll go ahead and roll back at that point. It didn't, I didn't see that happen in the PSQL session, but and I'm not, that's a place where I'm a little, a little unclear why, why I don't see that happen. I have to like explicitly say roll back, like give up. And when I do that, then the other one will go through and insert both records. So this could happen with, it could happen with two inserts that would conflict. It could happen with like two updates that would conflict. Uh, it could happen with like one of them is trying to delete a record and the other one is trying to update it. Um, but any place where they're trying to do that. And so um, what, this, is, this all comes down to locks. Um, I knew that locks existed, so you can say like, "I've got this row locked; nobody else can mess with it." Other people, and there's different levels of locks. You can say other people can read it, but nobody can change it because I'm about to. Or you could say nobody can even read it right now because I've got it totally locked off. You can even lock off a whole table for at different levels. Um, but what I what I didn't know, what I learned in the middle of this was that um, certain, like pretty much every operation you can do in Postgres acquires some kind of lock automatically. So for example, if you just do a select, it creates an access share lock on the tables that you're, 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 you're referencing, which means uh, nobody's allowed to like restructure that table in the middle of the select, for example. <laughs> um, so it's, a, it's like a very loose lock. It's like, you can do a lot of stuff with it, but don't, don't try to change the table off around me. Where, and, and of course, the table takes like an, nobody can look at this table until I'm done. <laughs> if you're trying to restructure the table, it takes that kind of lock. So that's what's going on. All these different, you know, update insert commands are taking locks out, um, and those can conflict with each other. So uh, solving this stuff, like the, the, the I, we can put a link. We can put some links to like the Postgres docs, and there's there's a link in Ecto 
um, in the Ecto sandbox, SQL sandbox uh, documentation about dealing this in, in test suites. But it really comes down to one of two things. Um, the, the way we created the deadlock was the first transaction is doing A, then B, and the second transaction is doing B, then A. If they always do A, then B, then you won't get a deadlock because the first transaction will do A, the second one will try to do A, and it's like, no, you can't. <laughs> um, and then second, first one can go ahead and do B, and then the, first, the second transaction will just fail, um, which, which would still be a failure in your test suite, but it wouldn't be a deadlock. Uh, and that would be better uh, in the real world if this actually happened. If you actually got this kind of deadlock scenario in production, <laughs> you would much rather have the second transaction fail than have a deadlock. So always do things in the same order is a partial solution. But for test suites, or actually that, that's like your production solution. But for the test suite, um, the real solution is don't have your factories produce static data. That was just a bad move. Like if you're going to have a factory, have it produce random stuff <laughs> and um, and only specify, you know, if you need if you need a particular value, specify that in the test and just don't don't have a bunch of tests try to do the same things. Um, if you need specific values that are going to be the same across all tests, that's where you want to use something like a fixture that you insert before all your tests turn async false on if you really have to. But there's some data in our in our system that's almost like this is just the way the world is. I mean, like a parallel example would be here are the states in the United States. We're just going to insert them all at the beginning of the test suite. They're all there. We can assume they're there. But in doing this, the, the, the way I had to sort this all out, the way I had to find these was like, you'd see a, you'd, I'd see an error in the in the ex unit test suite that would that would say like this process and these aren't elixir process ids they're like postgres connection process ids or something this process is deadlocked on this one you know that these two are waiting on each other so i had to turn on logging for all transactions for postgres and then go through the logs and then filter the logs for those process ids and then see what were they doing right before the deadlock happened and then go back to that test and say like oh, okay you're trying to insert this same user let me make you not do that it was Kind of a slow, painful process, but um, the happy ending is that we got it all fixed, and um, the test suite was like I think it went from like eighty something seconds to like forty seconds or something, and it's and it's faster on. Uh, I have a colleague who has a machine with more cores, and it's like thirty seconds on that machine. So uh, we got to the point where more cores equals faster, and that's what you want. That's awesome. I mean, it's it seems so silly to complain about an eighty second test suite, right? Like. Uh, like that seems like that should be fast enough, but why not? Um, that that's awesome, uh, especially because like yeah, so, so many of those tests are basically I/O bound by the database, right? And uh, if you're doing setup blocks that do lots of complex setup, um, yeah, you're gonna have big gains there. The one thing I'm trying to think about is like I've never seen this happen ever, basically like not in production or anything, and I'm trying to envision a scenario where it could become a problem in a real application and how you would even like mitigate that from happening in the first place. If, do you have any like thoughts on that based off of what you've read? Yeah, I've never you run in, into it in production either. Um, but what were you going to say? I was going to say you mentioned maybe doing things always in the same order, right? And maybe just limiting the number of transactions that you use at all, you know, if you don't have to. I'm not sure. Yeah, doing things in the same order would would be helpful and also i guess like in this particular case the the two, like the user and the product are being inserted in the same transaction but that's just because it's a test the way that tests work 
for the sandbox is it starts a transaction, it does whatever it does, and then it rolls it back at the end so that you your test leaves the database in a clean state. That's how the SQL sandbox works. So uh, in a real-world production scenario, I don't know if those two records would be in the same transaction or not. Um, I mean, sometimes you'll insert multiple records in a transaction, and that's important. But you kind of know when you're doing that. Like you, you generally will like start an ecto multi or start a, a repo transaction block. Uh, and in that case, you're going to structure those like every time the code gets to that code path, it's going to do those things in the same order. So maybe that's why we're not tending to see that. If if you, I guess if you had different like API endpoints that did transactions with those same records, but in a different order, that could cause that deadlock problem. But yeah. it seems like it's something you really shouldn't run into that much. Yeah, but but if I, I guess if I were to run into it, I mean, I would kind of go through a similar process of trace down the error message and look through the Postgres logs, try to figure out where that's happening. But it would just be a lot more painful if you're dealing with the fire hose of logs in production. Yeah, something else I just thought of too was uh, Postgres has, uh, they call them advisory locks, which are basically like, you can define any arbitrary lock that for whatever like business purpose that you need it's not tied to a table or anything really in the database it's just a string identifier that you can say hey this is a lock i'm locking this i'm releasing this and i've used that before i forget specifically but i think it was something with billing where i had to you know i wanted to charge someone some money so i had to touch a bunch of different tables create the invoice add the payment right do all that stuff and i wanted all that stuff to happen atomically but it's spread across multiple tables and i also don't want to try to do other billing stuff while i'm doing you know this one you know transaction like monetary transaction not database transaction although i guess technically it's both but anyway so yeah in that case i would use an advisory lock as a application-wide signal to be like hey i'm doing something with this person's billing stuff wait a second until you know until we're done and i guess uh, you could also use that in this case to you know help mitigate that as well if you you know had a specific thing that you kept encountering with a with a deadlock I haven't heard of advisory advisory locks. Is that is it like lock the whole world basically? Like nobody do anything with the database until I'm done with this? No, it's just literally an identifier that you can. It's just an arbitrary lock that you can use as application logic. It doesn't actually lock anything. It just you can request the lock, and then if some other transaction also happens to request the same lock, it'll just block until it's released. It doesn't actually lock oh. anything. Oh, it's like Postgres is helping you coordinate your application code. Yeah, exactly. If you had multiple nodes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Wow. I'm going to have to read about that. Locks are, in general, I feel like Postgres tries to lean on locks as little as possible. Although, I, I mean, that's what I had heard, although I didn't realize that it was doing a lock for every, every type of query you could possibly do. So now I'm kind of rethinking what what that means. But, but I mean, locks are... Locks are great for safety, but the downside is performance, right? I mean, you could just every time you do anything, lock all the tables and do your stuff, and then, and then unlock them. But then you get no concurrency. And is that basically uh, what SQLite does? <laughs> yeah, I think so. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, you, you want to minimize, like, you want to lock as little as possible. Lock one row if 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 you can get away with just doing that much. Um, mm -hmm. And typically, we don't have to like explicitly lock anything, but you can as needed. Anyone else have any other questions for Nathan about this? Um, well, I, this just is... had a, I just had a comment. It's yeah. pretty, pretty straightforward, but the longer your transaction is and the more rows it's affecting, the more likely it is that something else is going to block on it. So um, just 
being mindful about what kind of transactions. If you're using explicit transactions, especially being mindful of how much that's you're trying to get done all at once. Because then it won't even matter whether the you're you're conflicting with something else that's doing data operations in the opposite order. It could just be, you know, a query or an insert that's just gonna hit this transaction that takes so long that it ends up blocking. Um, Nathan, were there any like tools or like, I don't know, anything that you like use to debug that? And the Postgres has like the explain commands, analyze. Uh, so there's like a few commands that you can use to actually like kind of know what a transaction is going to do and how many rows it's going to um, kind of, you know, involve in that transaction. Um, was there anything like that when you were kind of like working with that? Uh, I don't know a good tool for that. Particularly, there may be something that I was missing. the way The way that I was doing it was just basically grabbing the logs. Uh, I'm a I'm a Vim user, so I have this magical ability to like highlight all the lines and like uh, bang grep, and it just filters the file that way. I feel like a super nice. user when I do that. Um, you know, I <laughs> I know all of you probably have better IDE setups than I do, but <laughs> when I do that, I enjoy that. Uh, that, that that's that's really how I was doing, and then just looking back at like what was happening right before it gave me the deadlock error. Um, and usually it was something pretty obvious in our in our test suite because it's like, oh yeah, fakey McFictional is getting inserted again. <laughs> so um, yeah, um, but yeah, if, I don't know if there's, if, there may be better tools for that. That's a good question. Uh, there may have been, I may have been doing it the hard way. Did you actually encounter any or fix any uh... Like, did you test improve the test suite, find some failing cases by adding random data, or were your tests still pretty solid? No, the tests were solid. I don't, I don't think there was anything that was like, yeah, yeah. Adding the random data didn't didn't expose anything. It was just, uh, it was it was just the the deadlocks that were the issue. Well, that, I did that's remove. Good, I, I did remove a couple of property tests because I was like, I'm trying to speed this up, and this this one actually isn't necessary. Come on, we don't need to test. You know. 5,000 different variations of this kind of obvious thing. Uh, and, and also I, I removed or shortened some sleeps, like that's a dead giveaway. Like if you don't want process.sleep, I, I just get, I just grep for that. <laughs> process.sleep, <laughs> can we make this shorter please? <laughs> yeah, it's always a, always a code smell there. We can, I mean, we, we could have a whole episode just on these different testing topics and we probably should. <laughs> Could you set up a credo rule or something or just catch that and then complain and see how I want to see that? I don't know if that would work because the, the test files are EXS, they're script files, right? So I don't know if credo can analyze script files. That's true. Someone can correct yeah. me on that. I'm just guessing. It, I don't know either. That's a good question. They can. Yep. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, I feel like process.sleep isn't always wrong, but there are sometimes better alternatives like like assert receive can take a timeout. And so if something could take up to two seconds, but it only takes one millisecond, then assert receive will return after one millisecond. And that saves you a lot of waiting. Well, cool. thanks for sharing that. Uh, hopefully someone can uh, hear this and, and uh, try to avoid this problem and issue, or at least we can point them at this. It could be a good resource. Might be a good blog post. Yeah. Great. Uh, so we actually had one other sort of secret topic. Um, this is more of just sort of a general discussion. But uh, ElixirConf EU is going on right now. And uh, Jose just um, announced... I'm just going to sort of 
paraphrase some of his his little Twitter thread here. We'll post a link in the show notes. Uh, he announced that there's an ongoing PhD scholarship for researching and developing a type system powered by set theoretic types for Elixir. That's a lot of very computer science sounding words, but basically, um, it sounds like they're funding some some research efforts to do something with types in Elixir. As in, hey, let's see if if this makes sense and what they can actually do with it in terms of, I don't know about improving performance, but more about just improving the development uh, tooling and compile time checks. Um, this is, of course, sort of, I don't know if it's in addition to or like destined to replace Dialyzer. I know people have a lot of opinions on Dialyzer. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of want to open the floor uh, and see what people thought about bolting on types to Elixir or really just any sort of uh, language that doesn't have a stricter type checking system. Because obviously we have types, but I guess this is more about type inference and that sort of thing. I mean, do people find value in type specs and that sort of thing? Go ahead, May. Um, I do use type specs. I do find value in them. I, I guess one area where I'm a little afraid is I worry about sort of the TypeScript effect. I don't know how many of you have written TypeScript. I have kind of mixed feelings on it. Um, but one of the things that I kind of worry about is just, you know, Elixir is um, it's a pretty mature language. You know, at this point, we have a ton of uh, libraries and frameworks and, um, you know, uh, just tons of stuff out there in the open source community. And I kind of wonder, like, are we going to end up in this situation where we are having to support sort of uh, these older libraries that don't have types and how that kind of meshes with code that uh, does use types. Um, I know that like TypeScript has like these uh, sort of like type definitions that you kind of pull in and sometimes those are provided by the library itself or just like community maintained. But um, I guess sort of that type anarchy is what I'm a little worried about where it's sort of bolted on in a way where it doesn't feel uh, very pervasive throughout the language. And um, I don't know, maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. Maybe like, you know, Elixir being a dynamic language, you want to have it be a little bit less strict. I think like TypeScript is like type optional, but um, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, just really my main concern. Um, generally though, I do really enjoy types, like um, in a language like Rust, for example, it can be a little bit frustrating, like fighting with a compiler all the time, but um, kind of have that confidence that you have like sort of an implementation that uh, you feel like is more reliable. Um, just kind of leaning on that. Yeah, the the TypeScript thing, I haven't worked with it a lot. I know that people or some of my front-end developer friends would say, like, if you haven't really started from day, day one with a TypeScript project, you're just, you're, you're never going to be able to backfill and, like, you know, convert everything. It's just, it's so complicated trying to, you know, as soon as you use the, I think it was called the any type, right? Or any object or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, as soon as you do that, you've lost, right? You failed. So yeah. Uh yeah, I feel like you do kind of have to buy in from the start. And that's a really, really good point of dealing with, you know, you do you would lose those advantages for libraries that aren't updated. So Mike, you're our, our resident uh advocate for dialyzer generally. What can you say? Can you talk about like the benefits that you see from using it and you know, or do you have any thoughts on on what they're working on now? I probably, you probably don't, haven't read about it, and it's just been announced. So, you, but what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I mean, I I came from um, my first language was was Java. So, 
uh, having having types defined and and basically being able to catch more stuff at compile time to me is is a huge benefit to not have you know dumb mistakes because this is a string versus a number or whatever you know whatever it is and so that's where you know I know yeah, <laughs> dialyzer is um, is is up there with you know presidential picks for uh, for uh, <laughs> controversy right um, but yeah just any any mistake that you can catch in um, uh, yeah compile time is 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 much better than catching it when you when it's running because um, it, when it's running might be in production so yeah i think uh anything they can do to 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 make that a better experience obviously dialyzer is a a nightmare if you're not used to it you know once you, I mean, for me once you once you learn how to speak dialyzer um it's great it's 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 or i would say it's it's much less of a pain um and the benefits are, are worth it but yeah if you're coming in in uh into dialyzer new it's 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 usually not worth the pain because it's just not, not on a dialyzer will tell you something's wrong, but it won't tell you what's wrong in a way that you can understand without, you know, like I said, having, having seen plenty of them and knowing where to look. So ideally a type system would, would be able to, would be, you know, much, much better than, than dialyzer. Yeah. The, the, the backwards compatibility thing will be interesting because, the question would be what 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 would be required and what wouldn't because if you have, let's say you have a library that's that's you know returning stuff uh, out of the library and it's not it hasn't been tagged or whatever um, then it would only really work if it could be inferred and so you'd have to the system would have to be able to allow you to maybe define what what's coming out of a call even if it's a, in any type right like a, like in, in TypeScript it, it would probably tag all anything it can't figure out as, a, as that wild card or any so yeah so it, the the user experience of how that's how that's all put together would be uh probably as or more important than the actual work to get it uh type typescript actually or to get uh types actually working so was my my initial thoughts on on hearing the hearing the news yeah yeah i don't i don't feel like i'm great at talking about type systems because i haven't used one all the time like in production or, or, or like day-to-day -day work, but I have tinkered with Rust a little bit and something that I remember from it, I'm probably not gonna remember the terms right, but there's like a, there's something where you, it's like, this is either a thing or it's nil basically. And it's gonna, if if, if one function, if, you're, if function A calls function B and it, and it could return thing or nil, then it will not let you compile unless you've handled the case where it returns nil. Uh, or like if it could return, you know, any one of these three things, you have to handle all three cases in your in your caller, and so it just like you can handle it by ignoring it. It doesn't matter. You just it's just not going to let you get away with pretending like that couldn't happen. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting. And I, I have seen Dialyzer catch some things from time to time, but but Dialyzer's error messages are just horrific. <laughs> and like it'll like you'll get one thing wrong, or you'll it's like you got one or two problems, and it spits out like. 10 or 15 messages and you're like i've got to figure out which one of these actually matters and the which ones are caused by the other thing i mean i, I frequently am just like what if i comment out the spec then does it complain <laughs> and then what if i like change all of the types to any then does it complain and then i start like working back towards the original spec definition until i figure out where the where the issue is um, but it's it's pretty painful 
but I, I do love the idea. I mean, anything that the computer can tell me I'm doing wrong <laughs> at compile time is great. Um, like Chris McCord is our our uh, our doesn't like dialyzer advocate. <laughs> He's like, I'm never going to use this. And I, but he 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 even said in response to this discussion that if I mean if if the like cost benefit for him was uh, was worth it. Like if he didn't have to spend so much time, if it gave him clear messages, then he would think that was great. Like anytime he said, you know, anytime the computer can tell you I'm can tell me I'm wrong, I want it to tell me. But I think the issue with him is just that it's. The way, with their current tools, it takes so long to get that answer. Yeah, yeah, I think um, the what you're talking about about you know if, if this can return something or nil, forcing you to to handle that. That's uh, that's an interesting. That's something that's that's kind of uh, if you have a type system, you can also do that. So I know like Elm. I think Elm is is like that. You have to be. You have to. Elm's is it won't ever crash because. You can't compile something that would crash because it will, it will, uh, it'll handle all those every branch. Um, Elixir, however, is based on a a language whose model is let it crash, right? So, so there's a little bit. It's a different. It's a competing. Um, it's a different philosophy. So, if you have a case statement and it could return nil. It's not going to force you to uh, to handle a nil case because if it returns nil, that's not supposed to happen. We're going to let it crash. It's going to reboot and you know and and rerun the supervisor tree. So so that extra that, that there's there's a type system and then there's um, whatever Elm is called. That's strongly typed. There's a there's a ter- terminology for that. Like you, everything has to be defined, uh, which I'm Elixir can't. I don't think it it can't go that that far. It just wouldn't it wouldn't work with so much of of the even just the philosophy of how how it's laid out. Um, but yeah, it's uh, if it yeah if it can if it can catch that stuff. It's it's more of the this can't happen, but you added a case for it type things. Those are those are one. That's where the benefit is. You know, you if you say you know if this returns nil, um, then do this. But in reality, the actual code. A zero is a is a you know is a is the bad case. So the compiler will say, well, this can't ever return nil, and so that'll catch you. You you know you you're you're grabbing the wrong, the wrong uh, return value. Those sort of things it'll catch. Uh, yeah, no, I'm definitely interested to see uh, what that looks like and how the user experience or the developer experience is going to be the key thing of how that how that is backwards compatible and and uh, works through that stuff. Yeah, uh, Nathan, I think you're. Trying to like rust options, and um, I think something like that with uh, Elixir would be actually like super valuable. Um, there's been like a lot of times, just for me personally, where uh, you have like some complex branching logic. I'm thinking specifically about like with statements, where you just have like a lot of lines where you're maybe like matching on uh, like a struct on some of those lines. Um, and one of the nice things about Dialyzer is it, I think it will actually like warn you if, like, so let's say that you have like a with statement and then you have like an else. Uh, where you're kind of like matching on sort of those uh, maybe like error cases or whatever, it'll actually like warn that um, you know some parameter or whatever can't actually like match. Um, I kind of wonder. So there's two things that I kind of wonder about. One, baking that into the compiler, what does that do for compile times? Um, I know that Elixir has had quite uh, quite an adventure, kind of fighting against some of the long compile times that we see in like larger projects, and there's been a lot of strides and. Um, and uh, newer releases, but also um, 
What about like hot code reloading? Like I know that one of the original motivations for um, not having uh, sort of like stronger types in Erlang uh, was just that you can do hot code reloading. So like, how do we uh, kind of solve that problem in a world where we're using types in Elixir? Yeah, it's a really great point. Um, Paul Schoenfelder, I think that's pronouncing that right. Uh, he brought this up in the Slack because he's very intimately familiar with uh, those all those sorts of problems. And I like, yeah, it's a completely different level of thinking about uh, the beam that I'm used to. But um, yeah, he definitely cited um, being able to just not just hot hot um, upgrades, but just code loading in general. Like code can be uh, loaded at runtime and compiled at runtime and you can replace entire modules. You can, right? Not that you maybe should or often do that, but that is a language feature that, yeah, would sort of prevent you, the compiler from um, being able to do anything with the type information in terms of, you know, the, um, I guess the bytecode. Uh, some of the other things he mentioned too were um, message passing. You know, uh, if you're sending a message from, I don't know, between two processes or even just between two nodes, like uh, if you don't have the type information on wherever you sent it, uh, you're kind of, you don't have any luck there, right? So you don't even know um, how to handle that message or what the type is. Um, and then his proposed solution was to to go back to the original point was maybe just have a strict mode that just disallows code loading. You know, you compile the application, that's it. And you just don't allow any sort of um, code changes at all. Uh, if your use case can support that, then then that and your compiler, you know, then can take advantage of maybe the type information to optimize some things. Again, these are all Paul's ideas, not mine. <laughs> yeah, it, it really gets to, to the, I mean, if we're talking about type system, is this, is this really about, a compile level type system for checking or you know are there benefits beyond simply saying you know this is an an, an integer and and you're passing in a function that requires a string because if it's if it's compile time checking then i guess you could you're i mean so you're still going to potentially have have any error that would happen now where there was a type mismatch um could still happen right so we're not talking about eliminating those necessarily completely um but especially where we're going to have a lot of the whatever the uh, wildcard or any any type would be I, I would see it as as being helpful but not not prescriptive in that like it would prevent you from hot loading a module maybe when you go to hot load the module you're you're either it doesn't check it at all and if, the, if you hot loaded something that's wrong it, it blows up or maybe if you could check on the hot load and potentially reject the reject the hot load if if um, well, then you have to go back and check all the yeah, it would be interesting. I, I, you know, to me, most of the benefit is going to be a, a compile time, and so hot loading. You know, it's gonna the module itself when it gets compiled is going to check internally, but maybe not necessarily check the entire world to see if it fits in there. It, yeah, looking forward to seeing what how it how it ends up. Yeah, I think what you said earlier, Mike, was was interesting that like some languages are trying to use types for this will never crash and the beam is all about let it crash like not that we want to let things crash when we could have foreseen them but we have we have a, a, a fallback for we didn't anticipate this and it's going to be handled nicely 
So I think maybe this just the answer for all of these things that you know we passed we passed something to a different node and it didn't expect that or we hot reloaded some code or whatever this is just let it crash you know we 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 have that answer for for those situations and don't let the the fact that we can't ever make this perfect keep us from getting some benefits of the compiler telling us you're definitely doing it wrong at you know at the moment when it knows that if it can know that i mean the compiler does kind of do a sort of like pseudo form of type checking in a way, doesn't it? Like when it actually like generates the AST, it's kind of checking to make sure that everything is like structs, for example, right? It's, you know, you're kind of just like, that's eventually just being compiled down to an AST. That's just like a list of like maps and atoms and other stuff. But that's kind of meaningful to the compiler in the sense of like, if you use a key in a struct that's not there, then it'll complain, right? Um, guards are like another example. I mean, just like, I think just pattern matching fundamentally. I think a lot of people, um, fundamentally, it's like not, you know, type safety, but I think a lot of people like practically use it like that. So yeah, I think the compiler could definitely handle it, but like trading, trading hot code reloading, that's like kind of, had saved me a few times. Like it's not something that I've relied on, but like there have been a few times in prod where it's like, yeah, this stops some like horrible thing from some Oban job from just going out of control or something, right? And it's like kind of like, sucks to kind of lose that but uh what do you guys think about like more like sophisticated types like there's a language called idris that i think does things like um lists of this type need to have like a certain length or like um you know like a maybe like a integer type that can only be like certain like within a range of like certain values like is that something that's valuable uh to you or is that something that's maybe just like going a little bit too far down the down that road Sorry, I'm not familiar with that. I missed that. It's called Idris. Yeah, um, I think they treat like types as sort of these like first class citizens of the language, where um, you can kind of have like properties of a type. And I don't know, like I've never written Idris. I don't know enough about it. Um, but I've kind of just spoken to some people who've like kind of advocated for it, and yeah, it kind of has that concept of just like um, types kind of having attributes of themselves that are imposed on like the values that inherit them. So you can have something like where this isn't just like an integer type, it's an integer type that's like within a range of values or like, um, I guess a struct would be example, you know, like a map that um, only like contains these certain uh, keys um, and maybe those keys are types. So like um, maybe just like more complex uh, typing like that. Um, yeah, I, I haven't, played with that and so i mean it sounds interesting to be able to define things in such so, so like so many so much nuance uh, you know this list has to be this long and so like that that sounds really interesting it, it's funny like coming from mike you're coming from a language with a, a, a type system and i i came into elixir from ruby where it's pretty much anything goes and you can like reach into stuff and modify its guts anywhere you want <laughs> and, and so for me, like Elixir is actually a big step up, even as is, where you get a lot more compile time, you get a lot more errors before you start running the code. And it's like, uh, you know, this variable doesn't exist, and you know, this is misnamed, and this is a function call that there's no such function, and just a ton of things that get caught that are stupid mistakes um, right at compile time that I really appreciate. The only thing that 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 actually frustrates me still in Elixir that's better in Ruby is constants you know like module names you can type an invalid module name and try to call a function on it in 
in Elixir, and that's that's fine because it's just an atom, and it doesn't really know <laughs> it doesn't know that that's that that's not valid until runtime. Whereas in Ruby, it'll tell you right away that that constant doesn't exist, and that's just a difference in how you know how the, how things are scoped. But uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, I get a lot more feedback at at compile time. Not that there is exactly a compile time in Ruby, but before I run the code, uh, and I really appreciate that. So the more the merrier, uh, as long as it's. I think it really comes down to the the experience of the whole point is for the computer to tell me I'm wrong, but it needs to tell me in a way I can understand, you know, because if I can't understand what's wrong, then the, the warning is kind of useless. I played with Elm a little bit a long time ago, and it's kind of famous for it's going to walk you right through and like point ASCII arrows right at the spot where you did the wrong thing and explain it in nice English words. And that's what I want from anything. It's, I need the dummy version. Please tell me in simple words what I did. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, Lixir Roundtable is brought to you by Dockyard. Dockyard.com. We got all kinds of stuff over there. We got blog posts. We got technical blog co- blog posts. We've got um, uh, businessy kind of things. We talk about agile. We talk about project managing. We talk about uh, all kinds of stuff. Lots more content over there. You can learn more about the services that Dockyard offers, as well as uh, jobs. We're hiring for all levels of Elixir, UXD developers, uh, full-time and contract. So go check out the career section of the website as well. Thanks everyone for uh, joining me on the round table this week and uh, we'll see you next time.